On today's episode of Content and Conversation, I am speaking with co-hosts of We Earn Media, Britt Klontz and Jackie Lambert. We're going to talk about how to foster reporter relationships and just some best practices that they've learned since launching their podcast. So to dive right in, Britt and Jackie, you both come from the interesting intersection of traditional PR and how it overlaps in SEO and content marketing. So I'd love to hear from both of you, how has SEO changed your public relations mindset and how has that changed media relations for you? Mm. So just to give your listeners a bit more history of my background, I started out in college studying PR. So I was really exposed to old school traditional thinking before I even started my career. And then my first internship was at a PR firm and we did more traditional media. So we worked with a radio station and I remember working with a local newspaper around this electric vehicle exposition, which is really cool. So kind of more in the event space. And so when I came to Blue Glass Interactive, which was, well, whoever has been in the SEO world for a long time probably knows about Blue Glass. But for those of you who don't know, that was a digital marketing firm back way when, 2012. And they hired me essentially because they said, well, you've got the PR skills that we're looking for, and we can teach you about SEO along the way. And so the whole goal was to pitch infographics, which I had never even really heard of before, and to just get backlinks. And that was my first exposure to that. And I don't know, the two kind of went hand in hand. Like I was able to just dive right in and do outreach pretty efficiently. I'll say over the years, what I have learned has helped me tremendously when doing even more traditional PR, which I define as doing more like thought leadership and trying to get my clients quoted. And that's the idea of providing concrete leverage for a reporter. And I think that's where content marketing kind of wins with PR. I'm talking about data-driven studies, rankings, things like that, concrete things that Basically, I don't want to say that a journalist can't say no to, but it's a lot easier of a sell. And so whenever I even approach looking at opportunities for a client that maybe just wants to be quoted and we don't have data to work with, I kind of put my content marketing hat on and ask myself, well, what are the stories and how can I make this pitch as concrete as possible? That way, we're not just saying, I have an expert on hand, I've got an actual piece of content for you to work with. And so that's kind of it. I think basically a PR professional is really good at media outreach. Knowing SEO and link building is like your superpower. And then anybody in the content marketing space, if you can do media relations really well, then you could kill it in a PR background. So they kind of work hand in hand, which is cool. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I'm very passionate about this topic. Okay, cool. Oh, you're good. What do you have to add to that, Britt? (laughs) Yeah. How about you, Britt? Do you find that like, because SEO changed the way you've done traditional PR? And then similarly, is there something that you find SEOs get wrong about public Yeah, Yeah. There's a lot of pet peeves that I have when it comes to SEOs and how they approach PR. I mean, I can get into one of my biggest pet peeves in a bit, but I actually don't have much of a traditional PR background. I I went to school for radio, television, and internet media. They threw in the internet media in my senior year. (laughs) 
was it like a last minute <laughs> throw in because they realized, uh oh, like, yeah. we're gonna die soon. We gotta make yeah. this be relevant. <laughs> and I was so grateful when yeah. they did that. I also started an internship at a small SEO agency that was acquired by Blue Glass, which is how I met Jackie at Blue Glass and landed there. But while I was at that agency, I had knew nothing about PR. I knew very little about internet media. So the a, the internship was really a great way to dive in and <laughs> roll up my sleeves and get to know more about SEO and how the internet works. And it was a similar situation in which I was given an infographic and I was told to place it on a big top tier outlet with a domain authority of over 80 or more or higher. And I was like, oh, no big deal. That doesn't sound so bad. How hard can it be? So I just did a lot of studying at first. I happened to come across a reporter at Mashable at the time who had written a blog post laying out exactly how she wanted to be pitched. So I studied that and I literally crafted my pitch to a T that spoke to what she was requesting. And that was my first big win, a Mashable placement. And (laughs) it was all downhill from there. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just the thrill of that was really exciting for me. And then, of course, most of my first few years at those agencies, as Jackie said, were really focused on infographic promotion. And that has evolved into a much more nice and healthy blend of traditional PR and PR for SEO, which has been really nice and love to think creatively. And I like change. I don't like to get stuck in a box as far as my career goes. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And no, that's great. And so you mentioned a pet peeve. Um, I would love to dig into because mm-hmm. I have found the intersection of I come from a similar traditional PR background. I got a communications degree concentration in PR. That was the first roughly two to four years of my career was just at PR agencies and also doing comms in-house. And so when I switched to sort of my move out here to San Diego is kind of what forced me to reevaluate my background because I was kind of at that sweet spot of, I was ready to go from kind of account executive role to account manager. And I found a lot of the PR agencies that I was talking to a, either really wanted to only hire me for like mm-hmm. my Rolodex, and which is something that kind of frustrated me with the yes. PR industry is that like once you get up to a senior leadership level, it's really just like, well, who do you mm-hmm. know in media? Like what journalists do you have on the phone that we can utilize mm-hmm. for our clients? So that left me feeling a little bit deflated about my growth opportunities. So then, yeah, I started exploring marketing having never taken really a marketing or business class in college, which I don't know how I got away with, even with a comms degree. They're so similar. But I started exploring marketing because obviously there's very obvious transferable skills. And then when I learned more about SEO and learned more about link building and backlinks and things like that, I was like, oh, this is what I've been doing. No real like data was ever put behind it, which was interesting. You know, I I reported on placement rate Mm -hmm. and impressions, but nothing else. So it was just really interesting to learn that there was another way to value this kind of work. And that's what 
got me interested in it. And then as I started exploring more and talking to more SEOs and educating them on traditional PR, my eyes were kind of open to what their assumptions were about public relations and what things Mm -hmm. they get wrong. So, I mean, something that stood out to me pretty much immediately, as both of you guys have mentioned, was kind of like the infographic placement and the early days of basically thin Mm -hmm. content, placing, you know, links kind of wherever you can get them, which is kind of the old school way of thinking. But are there even today some pet things that you have around how SEOs do public relations? There's Brit. Do you want to go first, Brit? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) I'll fill in the gaps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my biggest pet peeve has to do with measurement, actually, and the value of a link from a very granular perspective, I guess you could say. And I think this is important to bring up too, because of, I believe, maybe the audiences that are listening to this episode, potentially. So when I do training sessions and give advice on, you know, pitching and media relations, I'm often asked if we should avoid pitching publications who no follow links to external sources. And the answer is always no. (laughs) I truly believe there's huge value in a no follow link. They drive relevant traffic. Traffic is known to be a ranking factor and links drive it, even if they're no follow. They diversify your backlink profile. Google is more likely to flag and manually check your website if your backlink profile looks suspicious and, you know, overrun with followed links. So no follow links in the mix makes your profile look more like a natural backlink profile. And then finally, I mean, this is the third of my top three reasons why no followed links are valuable is because they still build authority. They help you in getting that social proof, which can be used to, you know, gain do follow links and will definitely help you in your future backlinking campaigns. There's always a chance that that story could be picked up from that one source, like a domino effect. And as long as the coverage is being linked to, it's still worth pursuing. So that's the biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves and why I go off Mm -hmm. into this whole tangent or rants when I talk about it. So Jackie, if you have anything to add. (laughs) I can attest to that domino effect. It's insane, especially when you're doing, I've noticed it with content that is a little more niche. They tend to pick up from other sources all the time. I was actually just doing a report and I'm looking and I was amazed at how, let's say I am working on a piece and I get three placements of typically, depending on what the piece was, I'll always find at least like one to three extra blogs that just picked it up. And so there is some Mm -hmm. inherent value in making sure that, you know, you get as much exposure to the piece that you're promoting as possible. Like, why wouldn't you want that extra exposure? That drives me nuts. So yeah, that was a good answer, Britt. Good job. I think you and I talk about this often. So yeah, I like to get on my soapbox about it whenever I can. Oh, no doubt. Actually, kind of to piggyback off of that now that we're kind of thinking more about backlinks. When I was at an in-house team for a little bit, you can look this up in my work history if anyone's that curious, but I won't bother name dropping them right now. I actually worked with the, we focused heavily on link building and I worked with our data and analytics guy and I might be slaughtering the description of this, but there's something called a correlation analysis to where you can take two different factors combine them together. And then statistically, they can tell you whether or not there's any correlation to the two things that you're looking at. So we looked at backlinks on the individual page level, 
and then compared that to organic traffic to those individual pages. And then we did a correlation analysis where we looked at overall backlinks to the whole entire website and then correlated that to organic traffic to the overall website. And what we found was there was surprisingly no direct correlation between a backlink pointing to a specific page and organic traffic being risen to that page. But what we found is as long as backlinks were getting driven to the website overall, it did not matter what specific page was getting backlinked to. We found that it directly impacted our organic traffic over time, so our entire website. And I think that can give hope to definitely to outreach people who are getting requests from the SEO team to build a very specific backlink on a very specific website. Because as nice as it would be to get a backlink to a money page on, let's say, Business Insider, you know the likeliness of that is pretty low unless you're providing some other like value that the journalist might find helpful to the piece. And so that's one pet peeve I have, actually, is being really picky about the backlinks being built. I think we should be happy with what we're getting, honestly, especially on a huge website like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a really good point because we have had conversations with clients who maybe don't understand the value of link building or we've gotten really specific requests like that of either a specific page they they want to support yeah, or just overall concept. And I always try to communicate it as like link building is a rising tide lifts all ships approach. And so while we're going to try to get those product and homepage links because they are more difficult, we're not going to force force it. it. And I always try to reinforce, yeah, the the publisher, the reporter, the blogger, whoever it is has like full editorial control and say Mm -hmm. in the end. You know, it takes us so long to foster those media relationships. The idea that, we would want to burn that bridge over our link or just semantics. It's just not worth, you know, you're eroding that trust that Mm -hmm. you can't ever Mm -hmm. utilize ever again. So yeah, I definitely hear you there is like getting way too in the weeds on placements and, and link metrics is just focusing on the wrong thing essentially. So With your consulting work, a lot of our listeners are either new to this part of SEO, the outreach component, or they're just looking to level up their game. I would love to hear from both of you just tips on what would an initial campaign look like? What are your recommendations for people that are just kind of starting from zero? Like Maybe they don't have any established press contacts. They don't really know what would work for them. So what are your tips for somebody who's like, I I know I need coverage. I know we need those backlinks, but I just don't have any relationship established yet with any kind of journalist or, or blogger or reporter. Well, or whatever I can definitely be. add some encouraging words that every single campaign I ever work on, I'm always cold pitching people. And I think it's kind of a misconception that PRs work with the same people all the time. They do if it's if they're working continuously in the exact same industry kind of doing like follow-ups to whatever. But in general, I think don't let that hold you back. That shouldn't be a barrier. What are your thoughts on that, Brett? Similar, I guess? No, definitely similar. And like, don't let that stop you. Don't let the fact that you don't have any relationships or contacts in that industry stop you from pursuing it. I would recommend worrying more about building up your knowledge on that particular industry. 
a lot of, yeah, a lot of people that we've interviewed for We Are in Media have told us how important it is to know your stuff, not only from a PR perspective, you know, knowing etiquette around emailing and communicating with journalists and reporters, but also know your stuff when it comes to that particular industry and whatever it is that you're pitching. It's hard to talk about in hypothetics, but... I was going to ask, the majority of our pitching is cold pitching as well. And usually it's with some kind of established campaign that we've been working on and just published. So whether it's like a data study or some sort of like broader thought leadership, whatever that may be. Would you say most of your cold pitching is with some sort of like fully baked campaign already Mm -hmm. in mind? Or have you done for your clients more just like general outreach saying, hey, like, wanted to ask the reporter, like, what are you looking for? Could we build something for you? What is that? I have strong opinions on this. (laughs) I want to hear it. I have very strong (laughs) opinions on this. I don't like the idea of going to a reporter and asking them what they want, because all you really need to do is do the back end research and look at what they're writing about. But that said, if you have a client or if you are the company that you're representing, and you are able to be a source for a story, make the introduction, cold email. You do not need to have a campaign. But what I would say is come prepared with something. So that includes stating who you are, what your expertise is, what your biography looks like, links to your social profile so that you've got social proof showing that you're a real person. And depending on what's going on in your industry, if there is a breaking news event or something that happened even yesterday, have that client or the company that you represent write some sort of statement showing that you have that expertise demonstrated. That can go a long way because depending on the industry, a lot of these reporters are on assignment and they sometimes just need to slap in a quote or interview someone really quickly. And if you're able to be that person, that's great. And secondly, we've talked to some people that say they like to have a variety of sources that they can turn to. So honestly, even if you're in a competitive industry, the more the merrier, I want to say, as long as you're providing some sort of value, I think there's room for you. But yeah, campaigns never hurt either. That's a good point about the just being aware of their time, because I have seen a pitch that's just like, Hey, wanted to let you know we're available if you ever need us. And that's kind of like too, too and don't say hey ever. I have to say, like, that is a huge like oh, true. <laughs> I've noticed that I, I was actually, I don't know who the reporter was, but somebody was complaining on Twitter just the other day about like, man, I hate the word hey. And my mom gets on to me about saying the word hey, and now I'm starting to like I've blacklisted the word now. Really? Yeah. I would just <laughs> say I would just say hi. <laughs> So many semantics. I know like we as people have also hate the mm, best sign yes. off versus something else. Things like that can really I know, people it's off like subtleties. I don't know. I feel like there's an art. There's an art, but oh for sure. Getting more kind of detailed into your pitch process, because I, I'm kind of obsessed with learning how different PR professionals like to do media relations. And one thing that we always try to balance that at Siege is that scalability factor, especially if we set monthly link goals and placement goals for our clients so that there's an assurance that we're, you know, actually getting outcomes for them. So when you guys are doing a campaign for a client, how do you balance that sort of hands-on personalization and scalability with your project? Yeah. So 
we talk about spraying and praying a lot, actually, Jackie and I. And while we definitely don't advocate for that tactic, it is something that, I mean, we don't necessarily personalize to a T every single email that we send because as you said, that would be very time consuming and mm-hmm. might not lead to a scalable results. So we've also noticed that as long as you're targeting and finding journalists who are truly relevant to the story that you're pitching, yes, you're more than likely not going to make anybody mad and you'll be working productively because you're finding and reaching out to the right person. And that can be almost sometimes just as time consuming though, as personalizing a pitch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. I tell so many of our outreach specialists, like sometimes I'll spend four hours vetting for a campaign and only send 10 emails or something like that, just depending on the campaign. Sending hundreds of emails every day at the same time. So that's what I mean when I say we don't advocate for spraying and praying. It's more of, I guess, I've never really thought of a nice phrase for this, but targeting and praying. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And still praying. There's still, yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's like definitely a level of luck here. Yeah, to pay me off what Britt said, for sure. Like, don't, that drives me nuts. If you're just like pulling lists, and sending one single email, you're doing it wrong. Be a little more strategic than that. I agree with you about what you said, Caroline. I will spend hours researching, but I find that if I can research a really, really, really good list, and even if it takes me, let's say a whole day, and I came up with 20 to 50 contacts, but they're highly relevant, you can send, I would think you would be able to send all those people that same email. And I think that's where Britt's getting at. So it's like a happy medium. You know what I mean? But I will encourage anybody working on a campaign, dedicate a couple hours to finding like one or two people that you really think you can personalize a pitch and come up with a super unique story idea for. You'd be surprised. You could get a an opportunity that way too. And then it's weird. There's like value in doing both approaches, but it's like, realistically, we can't only personalize or else we'd only get like one or two placements a month, which isn't very attractive to a client and honestly kind of boring too. So yeah, I like your point about it's like, who are those contacts that are, you know, are going to be yeah. slam dunks to get. And those are the ones you should really spend so. your time on. And yeah, and we think about, I get questions all the time of like, what's a good send volume? How many emails should I be sending? and I think more so you should just make sure that you're vetting. And I I say no to way more contacts than I say yes to. Good job. And I think for somebody just getting started in this, that can almost feel like they're doing a bad job. Yeah. Oh man, I have this pitch list that I need to build and I'm just not, I'm not populating (laughs) it. And, And my boss or my manager, whoever that is, is telling me that I need to have a finalized pitch list by the end of the week. And I'm only like, you know, I've only added five people. Gosh, but that actually means I that totally agree with right that. Right oh my God. Yeah. I'm glad you put it that way. I couldn't have said that better. Totally. Yeah. Seriously. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then if you have that yeah. limited list, you can focus on building relationships with those people outside of an email and outside of an ask, you know, you can focus on, we can get into how you can build relationships if you want. I mean, just share their stories on social. That always, from what I've seen and experienced, that always, you know, helps you get on their radar 
and puts you on good terms with them right from the get-go. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to ask you more about examples of basically, because I think that gets into more of the media relations part of like, Mm -hmm. we're just here to help. And even if it doesn't always support the story or the client that I'm pitching, I've had examples of that in my old jobs where I was in the good position in my in-house job where actually media was coming to us a lot, which made me a little bit spoiled. I worked at a big industry NGO. So that was a really interesting exercise for me on learning how to help journalists outside of like my own client or my own company's specific need. Because we would get journalists that would come to us assuming that we had certain data in-house that we could share or assuming that we could speak on a certain topic. And we didn't. Like we didn't have the data. We didn't have the thought leadership. Just didn't make sense for that company. And instead of just saying no and hanging up the phone, I would always say, no, we don't. But I can put you in contact with this Mm -hmm. person at this company. Britt, you already mentioned, you know, sharing their things on social media. I wonder if there's anything else that you found is helpful to foster that relationship outside of your specific need. Yeah. Just letting them know that you're there to be a resource is helpful and following through with it is even more important. So you mentioned how reporters would come to you asking for commentary or, you know, an expert to interview. And if you build the right relationship, you will have that happen to you more often And there are going to be times when you don't have anybody to provide that solid commentary. And that's okay. Journalists that we've interviewed have said, you know, that's totally fine. We're not going to blacklist you if you can't help us that one time or, you know, if you can't help us at all. Mm -hmm. But if you can go out of your way and connect with someone else in your network who you know has a client that might be a good fit and go that extra mile to get someone to provide commentary that doesn't necessarily benefit you or your clients, but benefits, you know, helps the journalists do their job, then that's going to show that you care. And that's one of my favorite ways to build relationships too, because I help out somebody else in my industry, somebody else who's a friend of mine. So we do it. Britt and I have done yeah. it twice now and it's worked out <laughs> great because then we can yeah. keep maintain our relationships, rub each other on the back or scratch each other on the back, whatever it is. Scratch we do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> getting back to kind of specifics of like campaigns how do you determine what is a good send volume is it campaign by campaign are you setting placement goals depending on the industry and just your internal knowledge of like what's realistic to expect just what are you usually communicating to a client of like okay based on what i know like in this industry that this is how big of a market we can expect to reach out to. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to go? It's not a sexy answer, but it's an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I set the expectation right off the bat. I say, I can guarantee nothing for you. And here's the truth. Right. I might end this campaign with zero placements. But what I can tell you is I usually never end up there. And then right. we don't like losing. <laughs> we don't like losing. And I'm like, I, no. I know some people are going to be different than others. I very much just show them previous reports that I've done. And I, I do like a reporting document where I keep track of placements, backlinks and all that. And I show them this is my unscientific answer. If I get five to 10 placements, I think, okay, that's pretty good. And then anything above, I'm like, okay, we did really good, you guys. And that's including syndications, because in my opinion, if you're already putting out the work and you're gaining that visibility for that piece of content, 
then there's no reason why you can't claim some sort of ownership over those organic placements. And we're very transparent about it. Like I'll let the client know like, oh, this came in organically, but look how good of an idea it was that we came up with that it would just garner organic placements. And then in terms of how I determine internally whether I've exhausted my resources, I very much feel the need to exhaust my resources. So what that looks like is it's going to depend on the campaign, but I look at top tier. What are all the different top tier websites that I can reach out to that is relevant to the piece? And luckily, it's just over years of doing the job that I can go to old media lists and pull a list of all the websites. like So like the CNBCs, the Business Insider, yada, yada, get that down. That's usually, I'll be transparent, doesn't really matter, 50 to 100 websites, I want to say. And then I'll look and then it just depends mm-hmm. on the industry. So mm-hmm. with the industry, I'd say domain authority of 50 and above. So like 50 to 70, I guess, is usually standard for like these medium-sized blogs. Any single one that I can find essentially through Google, BuzzSumo, and a tool called Cision, which if for those who don't know what Cision is, it's kind of more of a PR tool, but it's a database of journalists and websites. So that's my answer. I hope it's a good one. That's kind of like a something that I've struggled with with clients in the past is wanting like, no, I want quotas and I want goals. And honestly, sometimes like, Fitting in that box, actually, for me personally, like I don't do as well. I like to have the freedom and mobility to try different things, for lack of a better word, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Because like, I think if you're doing it strategically, it's just as much of an art as a science, if that makes sense, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we sort of try to say that we're going to get placements, but we also say, you know, this is completely white hat, our Mm -hmm. whole process. So, you know, numbers may fluctuate month over month if we're doing sort of ongoing campaigns. And so I think it is really important to set those expectations. And I agree with you about, I love your point about the not being put in a box, because suddenly if you're like constricting, whether it's a consultant or an agency or or even just an in-house person that you've hired to do this, they're going to be way more afraid to take Mm -hmm. risks if they know... Oh, I got to get 10 yeah. placements this month. Let me just like go back to yeah, what yeah. I know works. I just don't like that. Every time. And it does yeah. depend on the industry that you're in and what the story is, right? Because there's not always going to be a ton of outlets, publications in your black book, for lack of better words, that yeah. you can reach out to because it might be a really niche idea. And I know many times when people, when clients hire myself or when I was at an agency, they wanted us to come up with ideas that could relate to all sorts of outlets and verticals and industries and ones that we can, you know, tweak to speak to different audiences. And I think that's important, but it's also important to remember that you're still going after a certain audience for that client. And if you can create content for quote unquote, the little guys, it's actually a theme that comes up often and we are in media not to give so many shameless plugs, but I, I have so many. It's a great podcast. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. Plug away. I'm a, I'm a fan. I don't know if you guys know about it. <laughs> I love it. I love that. That's how we met. I love it so much. And I've always been a fan of Siege. So now I'm just, <laughs> now I'm just sucking up. Full circle. So the little guys. The little guys. Yeah. It's no, so important it. to also have them on your radar. Many times the bigger outlets do pull their stories from the small guys or local news stations. So that's something to keep in mind. But if you have an idea that's, you know, very 
focused and very in the weeds on a certain topic, it's going to probably limit the number of outlets that you can reach out to, but it could lead to a more quality placement as far as engagement goes. There's been times where I've placed content on very niche blog. And I don't want to say the name because I I really admire them and I don't want to rub them the wrong way and make them think that like, I don't think of them as a top tier outlet because they are, they just don't have the domain authority to back that statement up. We placed something on this blog and it sent over 600 visits to my client's blog and that piece of content that they link to in a month and a half. And that was insane to me for a- That's great. Wow. That's yeah, great for, for a blog content. that was, yeah. I think, a DA like 35 even. So you don't want to forego the smaller outlets. And that to me tells me too that people who likely went over to that content on my client's site truly care about the article that we wrote and are going to think of my clients maybe the next time that they need that certain product that they sell. <laughs> so... It all leads back to also just marketing as well. And it's important not to overlook the small publications, but it does limit the number of people you can reach yeah. out to. Is Let's shameless plug. Let's shameless plug the Rand Fishkin episode because that's oh, yeah. a whole episode about that. That is a good one. We've talked about a lot about niche publications, how they can be just as valuable and how relevant they can be for your site. And you know, it's not all just about volume. If you can, you know, get some of those really relevant industry links. Some of our clients work in like very obscure, like B2B industries. And, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to be in like a Mashable or something really, really high tier. But maybe this construction today is a huge win for them because that is a relevant trade publication that their customers may be reading much more regularly. And the DA difference between the two is like, a point difference of maybe it's like 20 it. or 30. So another question I had, we're all familiar with either pitches that maybe get like a polite no thank you or pass at this time. But I think the even harder thing is just the pitch that mm-hmm. gets no response. Because at least if, if you get like a polite no thank you or I'm going to pass, you can at least follow up. If you're smart about it, you're following up and maybe saying, you know, something like totally understand. Could I get some feedback potentially on like how I could improve? I find sometimes like the no thanks emails mm. to be almost as valuable as like the placement if you were Amen. to move forward because it just helps yep. you be better. Pitches also go unanswered. Journalists are busy. So I totally understand why a journalist wouldn't want to take the time out of their day to walk me through mm-hmm. any kind of feedback. So do you look at response rate and do you ever think about following up with no responses? What's like your preferred etiquette? So I have two answers for you. I do look at response rate overall as an indicator over whether the content piece might be a good idea or if my strategy on subject line at least was good. If I'm finding that my open rate's not great, I might want to tweak the pitch overall or take note in case in the future we look back and it didn't do that well. So that is important to me. When it comes to following up, I always follow up with anybody who didn't respond, but I usually just do it once. I used to do it twice. Sometimes we get a response after the second follow-up, but sometimes people, you could tell, did not want to be followed up twice. And we've gotten a lot of feedback on our Mm -hmm. podcast episode that just because you're not getting a response doesn't mean that the journalist isn't reading it and remembering it. (laughs) They're real people with 
like brains that have good memories. Keep that in mind. Just because you follow up once and they didn't respond doesn't mean that they're waiting for your second follow up. Yes, they're busy, but if they truly want what you're selling them, they're going to jump on the opportunity. So my rule of thumb is to just follow up once with everyone. And yeah, same for me. I only follow up once now. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Because we used to follow up. I think I used to do, yeah, more than one sometimes. And just to name drop a tool that we love, Mixmax is my new favorite tool for checking. And it's something Jacqueline recommended I try out. And I'm so happy I did. It's great. Shows you when people open your email and has like a live feed that's really addicting to watch. I know. Very distracting. (laughs) Yeah. I just heard about this tool like two weeks ago. I haven't investigated it yet. We use BuzzStream for all of our like, because we have a team of like almost 20 outreach people. It really helps with such a large team. But I just heard about MixMax. Well, I love BuzzStream. Stick with BuzzStream. I love them. I haven't had the opportunity (laughs) to use them because I don't have a team. But if I had a team, I'd probably choose BuzzStream over MixMax, I will say. BuzzStream shows you Mm -hmm. when someone opens your email now. You can totally remove this if it's turning into an ad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. It's totally fine. Yeah, they do wow. click-through rates. It's not the most ideal. I don't know how, you know, I feel like most of that technology can mm-hmm. be yes. kind of off sometimes. Absolutely. Like the, however, like the cookie is like now I'm butchering whatever. We like, get it. Technology, yeah. But like yeah. wherever, that, wherever that cookie or whatever is placed in the email, sometimes it doesn't fire. So then sometimes I'll see yeah. the open rate is zero, but then the click-through rate yeah, is one. Doesn't add up. Yeah. What kind of magic is this person doing? Or sometimes I'll see like the open rate is at like 75 or some crazy crazy number. I'm like, there's no way somebody opened this email over 70 times. And I think it's just like the oh, firing is off or great. something, but it's there. It's not perfect. It can help directionally, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just count, okay, open rate is either zero or one. If I see that they opened it even more than like three times, I start to second guess the data because I'm like, you'd be surprised. Open. Yeah, that's true. If it's a, if it is like a real hot, you know, lead and it is a blogger or journalist that is truly interested. They, they probably could be are forwarding it. it. Yeah, they could to forward to their editor it. to get approval. Oh, that's true. I've had that yeah. before. And I don't know about you guys, mm-hmm. but a pet peeve I have on journalists and bloggers when they cover yeah. you, but they don't tell you and then <laughs> you end up finding it yourself or you yes. follow up and then they're like, well, that's annoying. Ah, I mean, thank goodness for tools yes. like Jaws and Ahrefs. We tend to, like every single month at the end of the month before, like when we're compiling a monthly report for a client, we'll just scan their whole blog for any organic placements. It's yeah. shocking sometimes how much I that will come up. I Ahrefs. I also use, well, they pull from Majestic, but BuzzSumo has a pretty nice backlink mm-hmm. tracker. It's not perfect, but I think between Ahrefs, BuzzSumo, and then doing a lot of weird Googling, I found a lot of organic (laughs) placements that way. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of exact match titles. Oh, I'm obsessed. Like that. Very (laughs) good. I'll like catch myself like watching a movie with my husband and then I'll like go on my phone and I'll just like, I have my, it's so bad. I'll have a client name preloaded on Google with quotes and I'm just like, let me just see like last 24 hours. (laughs) You never know. You never know. (laughs) Definitely a lot of scanning the web. So, Do you find certain PR tactics that are kind of falling by the wayside? And then on the flip side, are there new things that are exciting you? For example, on our end, I don't think we've created a press release for a client in years. Granted, the type of 
PR that we do is is very different than what I think like a normal mm-hmm. press release. Nowadays, I see press releases as basically company announcements, like you hired maybe a new VP or CEO, or maybe the launch of like a really like a new product line. That's kind of where I see press releases fitting. But I do remember five, six years ago, we would do press releases for like the data studies that we just came out with or things like that. But that's Uh. becoming less and less. (laughs) And on the flip side, trying to do like, we're trying to think about how can we make the pitch more interesting? Do we, should we be embedding graphics or GIFs? Or are we kind of, you know, loading and making email load times too slow by doing that? So what are some like things that you guys have stopped doing? And also some like pitching Oh can I <laughs> can I talk about press releases for a yes, second? I was hoping you would say that. Yes, it has was. changed my mind. Britt shared this with me and I was like, I don't know. And I tried it out and it was like, okay, it worked. Yeah. So I don't abuse this tactic. Feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't. Don't yeah, hurt everybody listeners. Please, yes, have good point. Please good don't point. ruin it because you're going to make a lot of newsrooms <laughs> mad. But go ahead, Britt. So I used to have this sim- a similar perspective about press releases. I was like, what is the point? Waste of time. I don't even know how to write a press release. Like, <laughs> I didn't go to school for PR. Yeah. What is this press release all about? And then I don't even know why I started doing it, but I just started writing press releases. Oh, you know what I did? Probably because journalists were requesting them. And I was like, okay, well, let me go ahead and just start writing press releases, but not put them out on the wire or not have my clients put them out on the wire. That way, journalists who are requesting them have something to reference that's not my email. And that's all every information that they need to know regarding even like what the client is all about and what the methodology say. It was like a survey or a data analysis. The methodology is right there. They don't have to go to the piece if it's like a big fancy interactive and try to find the methodology in that one little hidden area that it might be on. Yeah. Very bottom of the yes. Or something. So I started yeah, putting yeah. together press releases. And like I said, we weren't publishing them anywhere on behalf of our clients and we weren't asking our clients to do so. And I find that if you do that and then just share it with the journalist, it just really at the end of the day helps them do their job. And my favorite part about press releases is that you can make multiple ones highlighting different angles or different storylines related to the campaign that you're promoting. That way you send different press releases to different types of journalists and reporters who are you are reaching out to. If that content piece spans general lifestyle news, if it also leaks into like home decor focused outlets, for example, you can tailor that press release to focus on exactly what you think that reporter will like and will want to write about. And it just helps them do their job better. And another thing that we learned that blew our minds recently, we were interviewing a reporter and it hasn't published yet, but he writes in the energy sector. And he just casually brought up the fact that he scans newswires to find news in his field and to find like new story ideas. And we were like, wait, what? Can you repeat that? (laughs) Can you go back? Because we couldn't believe that journalists journalists do actually scan the news wires to see what news is out there in their industry that just came out. And I think it just depends on the industry that you're in if you know you do publish it. But long story short, I love press releases, not necessarily to publish them or to put them out there on a wire, but for your back pocket mm-hmm. and to help your fellow journalists do their jobs better. 
that is my big spiel about press releases. <laughs> Mind blown because I was so yeah. anti-press release for so long. But yeah, that that is a good point. I like it as it's kind of that in-between of like your really concise pitch email that needs right. to be short because you don't want to just like, oh, here's this novel yeah. that you have to read that just bombed your inbox <laughs> with. So a really concise pitch email, but then you have obviously your client's blog content, they say wherever it's housed on their website, which is much longer form. So it is kind of that right. nice like in between of this seems interesting, but I don't have the time to dedicate yet to like dive into this entire long form yeah. piece that you wrote. Welcome to the Reformed We Love Press Releases Club. Jackie, what about you? Is there anything that like you've mixed up from a pitching standpoint or just anything that surprised you that you've tried mm, for your that's clients? A good question. Always trying different things. When COVID hit, actually, for one client, we were kind of in between campaigns and I just went on their blog to look for something. I'm like, I need something. And I found a blog post that was written for SEO purposes. And it was how to do X during COVID. I took that blog post and I summarized it in an email pitch and I linked to it. And I never thought I'd do this. I reached out to people in that space, like journalists and bloggers, asking if they would want to do their own story on the same topic and ask them to interview the client and link to us. And it was a mini home run, I would call that. I was surprised by how many people jumped on that. And I think it kind of goes back to the basics. I, I think why press releases might make a comeback too is what's useful and what's helpful for the news cycle. And so right now, I think during COVID, a lot of content marketers are left like, <laughs> I guess, having to throw spaghetti at the wall for a lack of better term. I just said it twice, but I'll say it again. And I, I think just coming up with like creative <laughs> ways to look at what's happening in the news and try different things. So I really liked that kind of jumping off of the blog post. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. That and also I was working with another client that they're more around thought leadership. And so we don't do any data studies at all. And what we ended up doing, it was around a like a holiday, I guess you could say, coming up with like some Q&As and some commentary that we kept privately, kind of like the press release to where we weren't releasing it publicly, but I was including in my emails and asking if anybody needed a source for a story and could I interview with you. And that's, that worked surprisingly well. And so I think it's the concept of putting that content marketer hat on and thinking, okay, I don't have a data study. I don't have a survey. What can I, but what can I present to the journalist that is going to make them want to cite us? And so that was kind of the solution there is just come up with our own creative PR, quote unquote, PR driven content that even if we don't have a high budget and we can't release it on the website, we can at least put it in a pitch. So that's been kind of fun, I guess. Working right. working with yeah. less has been a mm -hmm. theme. I like that. Yeah. Just seeing how you can leverage things that are already yeah. out there, whether that's actually published on your client's site or just leveraging exactly. the people in-house to tell an interesting story is really smart. So I guess my last question, I, I love so many of your episodes oh. on the Earn Media. I mentioned to Britt earlier, the this week's episode where you interviewed Jean from Seattle Times was like really eye-opening for me. And I shared a lot of tips from that to my team. But do you have like a favorite tip so far that you've gotten from a podcast guest? So I, I guess I'll go first because I think it's really relevant to maybe what your what your audience might care most about. And that's 
It was a tip from someone we interviewed recently named Elaine Selby, and it hasn't published yet, probably will in the next few weeks, but she's a growth marketer, so not a journalist, but the conversation that we had with her was full of valuable lessons and advice that PRs can incorporate into their strategies from a totally different perspective. I'm not necessarily an expert on growth marketing and haven't even worked closely with growth marketers. One of my favorite words of advice that Elaine shared with us was one that relates back to the importance of not being siloed within whatever team you're on. So whether it's the PR team or the SEO team or the growth marketing team, maybe what have you, she encouraged PRs to think about reusable components when creating content. So how can we leverage the efforts that the PR team is doing and turn it into other content pieces, whether that's social content, maybe an ebook or a webinar, whatever it may be, how can you use your content for other purposes and really get the full value from it so you're not just promoting it for a month and then forgetting about it and moving on? Yeah, that was one of my most recent favorites. <laughs> it's hard to pick. And then Jackie G's I think favorite. that my mind is going to the Alan Henry episode. Alan writes for Wired now, but he was an editor at New York Times. Sorry, my dog is freaking out. We're animal lovers here. (laughs) Alan said that the New York Times does not exist to be PR. And what he was saying was basically like media doesn't exist as the sole marketing platform for marketers. They exist to do a job. And so I think keeping that in mind is going to take any marketer far and that rather than asking what they can do for you, ask how can I fulfill their needs? And I think if you have that mindset, you're going to be able to adapt as media changes, which it has been rapidly. I mean, COVID is one example, but there have been many iterations over the years where what my day-to-day looked like even like three years ago looks so different than it did like even three years before that and what it looks like now and what it will likely look like next year. So keep that in mind, uh, marketers. You just have to understand, like go back to the basics and ask, what is the purpose of PR? Like what is the purpose of earned media on the other side? It's not just a marketing platform for you. You could be providing a real valuable thing to (laughs) the media. So I love it. Stay tuned for future weeks of content and conversation where we interview more experts like Lily Ray of Path Interactive and Alina Benny of Nextiva.